Section 15 of The Natural History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 2, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 15. Chapter 45. Ten Very Fortunate Circumstances Which Have Happened to the Same Person. Q. Metellus, in the funeral oration which he made in praise of his father L. Metellus, who had been pontiff, twice consul, dictator, master of the horse, one of the quindecemvirs for dividing the lands, and the first who had elephants in his triumphal procession, the same having been taken in the first Punic War, has left it written to the effect that his father had attained the ten greatest and best things in the search after which wise men have spent all their lives. For, as he states, he was anxious to become the first warrior, the best orator, the bravest general, that the most important of all business should be entrusted to his charge, that he should enjoy the very highest honors, that he should possess consummate wisdom, that he should be regarded as the most distinguished senator, that he should by honorable means acquire a large fortune, that he should leave behind him many children, and that he should be the most illustrious person in the state. To refute this assertion would be tedious and indeed unnecessary, seeing that it is contradicted more than sufficiently by the single fact that Metellus passed his old age deprived of sight, which he had lost in a fire while rescuing the Palladium from the temple of Vesta. A glorious action, no doubt, although the result was unhappy. On which account it is, that although he ought not to be called unfortunate, still he cannot be called fortunate. The Roman people, however, granted him a privilege which no one else had ever obtained since the foundation of the city, that of being conveyed to the senate-house in a chariot whenever he went to the senate, a great distinction, no doubt, but bought at the price of his sight. The son also of the same Q. Metellus, who was given the above account of his father, is considered himself to have been one of the rarest instances of human felicity for in addition to the very considerable honours which he obtained, and the surname which he acquired from the conquest of Macedonia, he was carried to the funeral pile by his four sons, one of whom had been praetor, three of them consuls, two had obtained triumphs, and one had been censor, each of which honours falls to the lot of a very few only. And yet in the very full-blown pride of his dignity, as he was returning from the campus martius at midday, when the forum and the capital are deserted, he was seized by the tribune Caius Atinius Labeo, surnamed Masserion, whom, during his censorship, he had ejected from the Senate, and was dragged by him to the Tarpeian Rock, for the purpose of being precipitated therefrom. The numerous band, however, who called him by the name of Father, flew to his assistance, though tardily, and only just, as it were, at the very last moment, to attend his funeral obsequies seeing that he could not lawfully offer resistance or repel force by force in the sacred case of a tribune, and he was just on the very point of perishing, the victim of his virtues and the strictness of his censorship, when he was saved by the intervention of another tribune, only obtained with the greatest difficulty, and so rescued from the very jaws of death. He afterwards had to subsist on the bounty of others, his property having been consecrated by the very man whom he had degraded, and who, as if that had not satiated his vengeance, still farther wreaked his malice upon him by throwing a rope around his neck and twisting it with such extreme violence that the blood flowed out from his ears. And for my part, too, I should look upon it as in the number of his misfortunes to have been the enemy of the second Africanus, 
Indeed, Macedonicus, in this instance, bears testimony against himself, for he said to his sons, Go, my children, render the last duties to Scipio. You will never witness the funeral of a greater citizen than him. And this speech he made to his sons, one of whom had already acquired the surname of Balareacus, and another of Diadematus, he himself at the time bearing that of Macedonicus. Now, if we take into account the above injury alone, can any one justly pronounce that man happy whose life was thus endangered by the caprice of an enemy, and that enemy besides not an Africanus? What victories over enemies could possibly be counterbalanced by such a price as this? What honours, what triumphs did not fortune cancel in suffering a censor to be dragged through the middle of the city? Indeed, that was his only resource for gaining time. Dragged to that capital, whither he himself in his triumph had forborne to drag in a similar manner even the very captives whom he had taken in his conquests. This crime, too, must be looked upon as all the greater, from its having so nearly deprived Macedonicus of the honours of his funeral, so great and glorious, in which he was borne to the pile by his triumphant children, he himself thus triumphing, as it were, in his very obsequies. Most assuredly there is no happiness that can be called unalloyed, when the terror of our life has been interrupted by any outrage, and much more by such an outrage as this. As for the rest, I really am at a loss whether we ought most to commend the manners of the age, or to feel an increased degree of indignation, that among so many members of the family of the Metelli, such wicked audacity as that of C. Antinius remained unpunished. CHAPTER Forty Six, THE MISFORTUNES OF AUGUSTUS in the life of the now deified Emperor Augustus, even, whom the whole world would certainly agree to place in this class, if we carefully examine it in all its features we shall find remarkable vicissitudes of human fate. There was his rejection from the post of master of the horse by his uncle, and the preference which was given to Lepidus, and that, too, in opposition to his own requests, the hatred produced by the prescription, his alliance in the triumvirate with some among the very worst of the citizens, and that, too, with an unequal share of influence, he himself being entirely borne down by the power of Antony, his illness at the Battle of Philippi, his flight, and his having to remain three days concealed in a marsh, though suffering from sickness, and according to the account of Agrippa and Mecenas, labouring under a dropsy, his shipwreck on the coast of Sicily, where he was again under the necessity of concealing himself in a cave, his desperation, which caused him even to beg Proculeius to put him to death when he was hard-pressed by the enemy in a naval engagement, his alarm about the rising at Perugia, his anxiety at the Battle of Actium, the extreme danger he was in from the falling of a tower during the Pannonian War, seditions so numerous among his soldiers, so many attacks by dangerous diseases, the suspicions which he entertained respecting the intentions of Marcellus, the disgraceful banishment, as it were, of Agrippa, the many plots against his life, the deaths of his own children, of which he was accused, and his heavy sorrows caused not merely by their loss, the adultery of his daughter and the discovery of her parricidal designs, the insulting retreat of his son-in-law Nero, another adultery, that of his granddaughter, to which there were added numerous other evils, such as the want of money to pay his soldiers, the revolt of Illyria, the necessity of levying the slaves, the sad deficiency of young men, the pestilence that raged in the city, the famine in Italy, the design which he had formed of putting an end to his life, and the fast of four days which brought him within a hair's breadth of death. And then added to all this the slaughter of Varus, 
the base slanders whispered against his authority, the rejection of Posthumius Agrippa after his adoption, and the regret to which Augustus was a prey after his banishment, the suspicions, too, regarding Fabius, to the effect that he had betrayed his secrets, and then, last of all, the machinations of his wife and of Tiberius, the thoughts of which occupied his last moments. In fine, this same God who was raised to heaven, I am at a loss to say whether deservedly or not, died, leaving the son of his own enemy his heir. CHAPTER Forty Seven, MEN WHOM THE GODS HAVE PRONOUNCED TO BE THE MOST HAPPY In reference to this point, two oracles of Delphi may come under our consideration, which would appear to have been pronounced as though in order to chastise the vanity of man. These oracles were the following. By the first, Pedius was pronounced to be the most happy of men, who had just before fallen in defence of his country. On the second occasion, when it had been consulted by Gyges, at that time the most powerful king in the world, it declared that Aglaus of Sophis was a more happy man than himself. This Aglaus was an old man who lived in a poor petty nook of Arcadia, and cultivated a small farm, though quite sufficient for the supply of his yearly wants. He had never so much as left it, and, as was quite evident from his mode of living, his desires being of the most limited kind, he had experienced but an extremely small share of the miseries of life. Chapter 48 The Man Whom the Gods Ordered to Be Worshipped During His Lifetime A Remarkable Flash of Lightning While still surviving, and in full possession of his senses, by the command of the same oracle, and with the sanction of Jupiter, the supreme father of the gods, Euthymus, the pugilist, who had always, with one exception, been victorious in the Olympic Games, was deified. He was a native of Locri, in Italy. I find that Callimachus, considering it a more wonderful circumstance than any he had ever known, that the two statues which had been erected to him, one at Locri and the other at Olympia, were struck by lightning on the same day, ordered sacrifices to be brought up to him, which was accordingly done, both during his lifetime and after his death. Nothing, indeed, has appeared to me so remarkable as this mark of approval given by the gods. CHAPTER Forty Nine, THE GREATEST LENGTH OF LIFE Not only the differences of climate, but the multitude of instances named, and the peculiar destiny attached to each of us from the moment of his birth, tend to render one very uncertain in forming any general conclusion respecting the length and duration of human life. Hesiod, who was the first to make mention of this subject, while he states many circumstances about the age of man, which appear to me to be fabulous, gives to the crow nine times the ordinary duration of our life, to the stag four times the length of that of the cow, to the raven three times the length of that of the stag, besides other particulars with reference to the phoenix and the nymphs of a still more fabulous nature. The poet Anacreon gives one hundred and fifty years to Arganthonius, the king of Tartessi, ten more to Cenarus, the king of Cyprus, and two hundred to Agemius. Theopompus gives one hundred and fifty-three years to Epimenides of Knossus. According to Hellenicus, some of the nation of the Epi in Aetolia have completed their two hundredth year, and his account is confirmed by Damastes, who relates that Victorius, one of this nation, who was remarkable for his size and strength, lived even to his three hundredth year. Ephorus says that some kings of Arcadia have lived three hundred years. Alexander Cornelius that there was one Dandon in Illyricum who lived five hundred years. Xenophon, in his Periplus, gives to a king of the island of the Lutmi six hundred years, and as though in that instance he had lied too sparingly, 
to his son eight hundred. All these statements, however, have originated in a want of acquaintance with the accurate measurement of time, for some nations reckon the summer as one year and the winter as another. Others again consider each of the four seasons a year, the Arcadians, for instance, whose years were of three months each. Others, such as the Egyptians, calculate by the moon, and hence it is that some individuals among them are said to have lived as many as one thousand years. Let us proceed, however, to what is admitted to be true. It is pretty nearly certain that Argenthonius of Gades reigned eighty years, and he is supposed to have commenced his reign when he was forty. Massinissa, beyond a doubt, reigned sixty years, and Gorgias, the Sicilian, lived one hundred and eight. Quintus Fabius Maximus was an augur for sixty-three years. M. Perperna, and more recently L. Volusius Saturninus, survived all those whose suffrages each had solicited on the occasion of his consulship. Perperna lived ninety-eight years, and left after him only seven of those whose names, when censor, he had enrolled. Connected with this fact, it also suggests itself, and deserves to be remarked, that it has happened only once that five successive years have ever passed without the death of a senator taking place. This was the case from the occasion on which the censors Flaccus and Albinus performed the lustration, in the year of the city 579, until the time of the succeeding censors. M. Valerius Corvinus completed one hundred years, forty-six of which intervened between his first and sixth consulship. He occupied the curule chair twenty-one times, a thing that was never the case with any one besides. The pontiff, Metellus, also attained the same age. Among women also, Livia, the wife of Rutilius, exceeded her ninety-sixth year. During the reign of Claudius, Statilia, a member of a noble family, died at the age of ninety-nine. Terentia, the wife of Cicero, lived one hundred and three years, and Clodia, the wife of Ophilius, one hundred and fifteen. She had fifteen children. Lucia, an actress in the mimes, performed on the stage when one hundred years old, and Galeria Coppiola returned to the stage to perform in the interludes at the votive games which were celebrated for the health of the deified Augustus in the consulship of C. Popeus and Q. Sulpicius. She had made her first appearance when eight years of age, just ninety-one years before that time, when M. Poponius was aedile of the people, in the consulship of C. Marius and C. Carbo. When Pompeius Magnus dedicated his great theatre, he brought her upon the stage as being quite a wonder considering her old age. Asconius Pedianus informs us that Semula also lived one hundred and ten years. I consider it less wonderful that Stefanio, who was the first to dance on the stage in comedy descriptive of Roman manners, should have danced at the two secular games, those celebrated by the deified Augustus and by Claudius Caesar in his fourth consulship considering that the interval that elapsed between them was no more than sixty-three years. Indeed, he lived a considerable time after the last period. We are informed by Mutianus that on the peak of Mount Tmolos, which is called Tempsis, the people live one hundred and fifty years, and that T. Philonius of Bononia was set down as of the same age in the registration which took place under the censorship of Claudius Caesar and this appeared to be confirmed by comparing the present with former registrations, as well as many other proofs that he had been alive at certain periods, for that prince greatly interested himself in ascertaining the exact truth of the matter. CHAPTER 50 THE VARIETY OF DESTINIES AT THE BIRTH OF MAN The present conjecture would appear to demand from me some opinion upon the science of the stars. Epigenes used to maintain that human life could not possibly be prolonged to one hundred and twelve years, 
and Barosus that it could exceed one hundred and seventeen. The system is still in existence, which Petosiris and Nesepsus transmitted to us, and called by them Tartimorion, from the division of the signs into four portions, from which it would appear that life in the region of Italy may possibly be extended to one hundred and twenty-four years. They maintain that reckoning from the commencement of any ascending sign, no life can possibly exceed a period of ninety degrees from that point, which periods they call by the name of anaphorae. They say also that these anaphorae may be intercepted by meeting with malign stars, or their rays even, or those of the sun. To theirs the school of Aesculapius succeeded, which admits that the allotted duration of life is regulated by the stars, but that it is quite uncertain what is the greatest extent of the period. These say that long life is uncommon, because a very great number of persons are born at critical moments in the hours of lunar days, for example in the seventh and fifteenth hours, both by day and night. These individuals are subject to the malign influence of that ascending scale of the years which is termed the climacteric, and never hardly, when born under these circumstances, exceed the fifty-fourth year. First of all, however, it must strike us that the variations which have taken place in this science prove its uncertainty, and to this consideration may be added the experience of the very last census, which was made four years ago under the direction of the emperors Vespasian, father and son. I shall not search through the registers, I shall only cite some instances in the middle district that lies between the Apenninus and the river Padus. At Parma three persons declared themselves to be one hundred and twenty years of age. At Brixilum one was one hundred and twenty-five. At Parma two were one hundred and thirty. At Placentia one was one hundred and thirty. At Favencia one woman was one hundred and thirty-two. At Bononia, L. Terentius, the son of Marcus, and at Ariminum, M. Aponius, were one hundred and forty, and Tertulla one hundred and thirty-seven. In the hills which lie around Placentia is the town of Valaeseum, in which six persons gave in their ages as one hundred and ten years, and four one hundred and twenty, while one person, M. Musius, the son of Marcus, surnamed Felix, and of the Galerian tribe, was aged one hundred and forty. Not, however, to dwell upon what is generally admitted, in the eighth region of Italy there appeared by the register to be fifty-four persons of one hundred years of age, fourteen of one hundred and ten, two of one hundred and twenty-five, four of one hundred and thirty, the same number of one hundred and thirty-five to one hundred and thirty-seven, and three of one hundred and forty. Again, we have another illustration of the uncertain tenure of human life. Homer informs us that Hector and Polydamus were born on the same night, and yet how different was their fate. M. Calius Rufus and C. Licinius Calvus were born on the same day, the fifth before the Calends of June, in the consulship of C. Marius and C. Carbo. They both of them lived to be orators, it is true, but how different their destiny! The same thing, too, happens every day, and in every part of the world, with respect to men that are born in the self-same hour, masters and slaves, kings and beggars, come into the world at the same moment. End of section 15